Hey, everybody. Welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen, and I am your host. And I am excited to introduce to you an old friend of mine, uh, Chris Kittemeyer. Chris works for American Philanthropic. Chris is a professional fundraiser. And although it's, this is not in his job description or his title, I think Chris could be right like the fundraising equivalent of a horse whisperer. Chris, he kind of takes you into the heart and mind of the challenges that many church leaders experience when they set out to do fundraising and development work. The fears of rejection and hypocrisy. He talks about how important it is for us to acknowledge when we're new. And he gives some keys, like the golden question. At the end, he talks about what if a parish were to begin to do a mission campaign? This is great stuff. You're going to love this. Listen to this for yourself and for uh, a pastor or an organizational leader you know who isn't maybe uh, excited to take their first step. Chris is going to demystify that. And he offers a free consulting conversation at the end. Take a listen. Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Chris Kittebeyer, welcome to the podcast. We've been friends for a long time, and I wouldn't remember how long, except for that uh, you and your lovely wife, uh, Elizabeth, and I met when my oldest, now 19 years old, was a baby. So Chris, thanks for being with us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jim. It's great to great to be here. Thanks for having me here. It's it's amazing to think about how fast time flies and how long we've known each other. That it's been now more than half my life, I think, that we've known each other. <laughs> no, thanks for making me feel old now. Not quite, <laughs> not quite half my life. <laughs> All right, Chris. So we want to talk about development like the, the art of inviting people into the mission that God has given us. But before we get there, like tell people a little bit, who are you? When did you first encounter Jesus? Just give like that snapshot of your journey of faith. Uh, thanks. I grew up in central Illinois in a very small farming community. I was raised Catholic, but I knew from a very young age that I did not believe anything that I heard at church. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in Jesus. I didn't believe any of those things. Okay. I just have to stop you right there because that is like hilariously polar opposite or like the negative. Everybody's <laughs> like, and I knew from a young age that God was real and he loved me. And you're like, no, I knew from a young age that it was not true. You know, uh, I, I, I realized much later in life that part of that was because of the mental health struggles that my family was going through at the time mm. that came down, came down to me. But uh, part of it was also, I saw people who didn't live the faith or maybe didn't live it the way that I thought that if people really believed in Jesus, they would live it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's interesting to me now that I'm older, I'm like, actually, this is really hard. I worry that I would scandalize my eight-year-old self at times, but I do. I remember from that very young age, we would, my uh, best friend and I would skip altar boy service training and then, and then lie about it because, uh, you know, I knew... I didn't believe anything that was happening. And I certainly wasn't going to sit up front and pretend that I believe these things. Wow. So my other best friend had a deep faith. And when I went to college, he went to college at the same place. We didn't hang out though, because I lived off campus. And so after a couple of weeks of school, he said, Hey, we, you, do you want to go on this retreat? And I said, you know, I'm not going to go on a retreat. And he said, well, we he tried to guilt me into it. We haven't hung out for a long time. And I said, well, if you would come <laughs> to my parties, we would hang out plenty. Uh, and <laughs> And he knew me really well. 
And so he said, hey, well, there's going to be twice as many girls as guys on the retreat. And I said, okay, I'm in. That's awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> No, I mean, shame on you. Yes, that's right. And I hated it. I hated the retreat, but because everybody else was doing it, I went to confession. And I think that that, you know, the Lord used that to really send a lot of grace into my life and wipe away a lot of the things that were holding me back. And over the next couple of weeks, some things in my personal life got really tough. And I started thinking, why is life worth living? And I thought back to that retreat and I thought those people are the only people I know that who seemed happy. So uh, I started sneaking in to the basement of the student center and reading the catechism, which I didn't, I mean, I couldn't, I didn't know all the words to the Our Father. And I don't know if I'd ever heard the Hail Mary. I mean, I, I was raised Catholic, but uh, I mean, I really wow. shut it all out. So I started reading the catechism for the first time and sneaking into the chapel at like 11 o'clock at night until two in the morning. And God just came into my life in a really powerful way. So holy cow, that's awesome. And you know what? I've heard your story a number of times. I, yeah, I did not remember some of those details. So, okay. So we knew each other as missionaries. Uh, we worked together, uh, you and, and then not at the time, but, uh, your, uh, eventually to be wife, Elizabeth, we worked together in focus. Tell us about your day job now. So I uh, stayed at Focus for 18 years, and for 15 of those, I was in the development department, the fundraising department. My major in college was marketing, and I loved it. When when I first started at Focus, and we had to do this fundraising thing, I thought it sounded crazy, but I didn't need much money. And so I was like, okay, I'll do that. But for some reason, when Focus said, hey, we're restarting the development department, do you want to be a part of it? my marketing brain just went off and I was like, I love everything about that. So I, I worked in their development department for 15 years and, and really loved it. And then one summer I was co-teaching at the University of Mary's Institute of Catholic Philanthropy, which has a, it's a, like a specialization in fundraising for an MBA. Yeah. And I met the founder of American Philanthropic and that's where I work now. American Philanthropic helps nonprofits to raise more money and helps them achieve their missions in, in lots of ways. And the primary sectors that they do that in are faith, um, particularly Christian and Catholic, mm -hmm. uh, in education, and then in some policy organizations. And so I'm a partner there and we've been, we've served 450 different clients along the way. And so I get to work with homeless shelters and veterans groups and churches and Christian ministries and all kinds of amazing organizations and just talk about how do we help them to do more mission? It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I love it. I, you know, not a client myself, but I was checking out the the website and you guys have had, at least within the Catholic world, some well-known Providence High School up in Minnesota, which I've been to an amazing place, uh, Word on Fire Ministries, mm -hmm. Bishop Robert Barron and Magdalene College, a number of things. I was like, wow, these are great places. Nice clients that were happy to share a little bit of their story having been served. Yeah. On Monday, I get to go up and spend the day with St. Paul's Outreach in Minnesota, which I'm really excited about. Oh, that's awesome. They're great. All right, Chris. So let's, let's just dive in here. So Again, we talk a lot in, in the church about stewardship and development. And stewardship is probably the heart of things because that you know, that is like this response that we're making as disciples when we recognize what the Lord has given us and we, we desire to give something back. But the development side of it, the art and science of organizing, making invitations, developing a mission and a plan and a strategy, and then inviting people to participate in that, sometimes that makes people a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, we can talk more about that later, but that's that's sometimes the half of stewardship and development that can occasionally get neglected. As we dive kind of into that conversation today, just give us a quick overview 
on kind of the state of development in the church today? It's an interesting state to be in. There's so much more about the church and stewardship that I will never know, or I don't know, and others know so much more about. And it's a challenging situation because in the history of the church, there have been times when the church has been too much about money, right? Where there's been huge scandals and the scandal was about money, you bishops who had right. too much money yeah. and, and, and all these things. And so I understand the church's hesitancy and cautiousness mm. around approaching development. And at the same time, what that leads to is the church often doesn't do things that in the nonprofit world of fundraising are clear and obvious, and we should definitely do this, right? I mean, I think back mm. to the days before for instance, like Flocknote, where the only way to get any information about your parish was to go pick up a bulletin. And, you know, anybody who had ever been on social media would say, uh, maybe if you post what you're doing, people would know, which is pretty obvious and clear, right? <laughs> right. And, and yet, uh, uh, in, in development, some of those obvious and clear things we're very hesitant to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of that is because we're scared of it. Part of it is because nobody, nobody goes into ministry because they're excited about fundraising. I don't, I've never met anybody who did that. Mm-hmm. And so it's not something that makes people feel comfortable, but, but you see that in certain things like the largest percentage of giving from Americans goes to faith-based institutions. Mm. And yet the smallest amount of plan gifts uh, of gifts in people's estate, because you have to ask people for a gift in their estate and the church would never do that. Yeah, We're afraid of kind of addressing the fundraising question. We want to make an appeal from the front of the church rather than face-to-face appeal, which is very similar. I may be jumping the gun to your next question, but similar to evangelization. Yeah. No, we'll talk about that. I was, yeah, I was, I didn't want to go there because I think I, I served as a focus missionary. And when I did, I had to raise my own salary. And not only did I have to do the fundraising development thing, but I had to do it in a way that it was pretty clear it was for me. I mean, it's hard enough to ask someone to make a gift for something that isn't for you or feels a little bit more distant from you. But I had to ask people to adopt me personally to support my uh, missionary labors. And man, is that a gut check. And, And that gut check feels very similar to the type of gut check you feel when you take the gospel seriously as a disciple or when you have to share your faith as a, as a missionary disciple in a moment of evangelization. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between those things, discipleship, evangelization, and development? Because I don't know if most people would pair them, but for us, like, oh, they totally go together. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about that. I think there's a couple of ways they go together. The first is in what what holds us back. And I think that that's often our, our own fear, mm-hmm. our, our fear, number one, of rejection. That, that they might yeah. say no. And number two, that we might be asking them to do something that we actually don't do that well. Yeah. That we might be asking somebody to give a gift when we don't always give the gifts that we should give. Right. There's this combination of fear of rejection and fear of hypocrisy. And those are pretty powerful fears in both evangelization and in fundraising. Yeah. The the second way that they that they go together, uh, they feel very personal to be asking of someone. Yeah. And so, you know, oftentimes when you start talking to people about whether or not they've evangelized someone, they'll say something like, "Well, I like to evangelize always and use words when necessary." <laughs> uh, which basically means I just try to live a nice life and if someone converts, that's kind of that's kind of on them. Yeah. Uh, and and that's the way we want to do fundraising at the parish too. We want to give an annual uh, annual update how the church is doing, uh, the the parish is doing, 
how the fundraising is going and hope that if people are moved to give, they will. But it feels so personal to have to go and talk to someone about it. Yeah. A little overwhelming. So, yeah. But, but I also think once you've done it, um, it doesn't make it, I mean, it does get easier over time. But once you've done it, there's such powerful grace in doing so. And you and you realize more that, that you're that what you're doing is inviting someone to receive more than you're inviting them to do something. Yeah. I think of someone who does fundraising full time. I often equate their job to a nutritionist. We we all know that we should probably eat healthy. Yeah. And that we would be happier if we did. But I'd rather eat a cookie and I'd rather have more <laughs> ice cream than more broccoli. But I know that I'd actually be happier if I ate healthy. And the same thing with giving. I know buying more stuff won't really make me happier. And I experienced that when I give my money away to help someone else, it actually does make me happier. But overcoming that, yeah, but I would really like a new sweater, or I would really like to go on a bigger vacation, or I would really like to buy a steak dinner instead of go to Chipotle for a date. I want all of those things. I personally want all of those things. But but for a fundraiser to remind me, not specifically with these words, that I would be happier if I lived more simply and gave more money away is such a great blessing to the people that you do that for. Because when they do it, they'll feel so glad that they did. Yeah. Well, and if I can speak to the pastor's hearts out there, the middle income, middle to lower income in the United States puts you as one of the richest people in the history of humanity. I mean, middle income in the United States right now is just I mean, right, Solomon in all of his splendor did not have microwave burritos and air conditioning. (laughs) We are so wealthy and the gospels are full of the dangers and the warnings and the teachings of Jesus of the danger of wealth. And as a pastor, to invite someone to be free of that, it's an essential part of our pastoring duty. You got to give it away. You have to give. It is more blessed to give than receive. You don't have to give it to us, but as your pastor, I have to tell you, this is essential to your spiritual health. (laughs) Generosity is not optional for a disciple. Mm -hmm. Chris, I remember as we were talking a little bit, just ahead of the show, before we hit, hit record, we were talking about the book of Romans. Like These things came together for you. Like You have some convictions here. Tell us how these these convictions came to be, because they didn't, they didn't come out of nowhere. As I felt drawn to this field, I realized I didn't know what I was talking about. So I started reading a lot of books and mm. and part of it at one point, somebody had said, hey, maybe you should write a Bible study. And I was like, oh, maybe I should study the Bible about what the Bible says about these things. <laughs> and, and I was just blown away. The things that, that Christ teach and, and looking at what a powerful thing generosity can be. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that really struck me personally is in, in Romans 12, it talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And one of the gifts that it talks about is generosity. Uh, you know, we, we often think about the other, some of the other gifts uh, mentioned at the same time are uh, the gift of hospitality, the gift of prophecy and these things. And we often think, you know, oh, we need to host an event. Who should we ask to help? And someone will say, well, Betty has the gift of hospitality. I bet we should ask her you know but but we never think of the gift of generosity as mm. being in the same thing yeah that actually that might be someone's path to holiness that the way that they're supposed to live their faith is through generosity and we we don't invite people to do that and one of the ways you can know that Betty might have the gift of hospitality or most of the people who have the gift of hospitality that I know you know either they're really good at bringing people together or they're really good at baking 
they've got some kind of gift that says that, that you would see and say, hey, maybe the gift of the Holy Spirit is in them. And yeah, you know, I think a good way to see potentially that somebody has the gift of generosity is that the Lord gave them things to be generous with. Yeah. <laughs> not always. I know people who do not have much and have the gift of generosity, but, mm-hmm. but oftentimes I think God really wants to work. You know, the reason that he gave people these material blessings is because he wants to introduce them to the spirit of generosity. Yeah. But we often don't think about that, that we might be inviting them to discover the special graces God has given by sharing with them an opportunity to be generous. Chris, as you say this, I can think of like 10 people that I've been so blessed to meet in my life who probably had the gift of generosity. And like there, when I invited them to give to something I was doing, like the joy that they had in giving, like way outpaced what you would expect. I mean, it's just, it was clear that it was like this deep, deep joy for them and something that was drawing them closer to the Lord. It was very cool to watch. That's great. I've, I've seen that many times. And what you, you don't often see is people who are building their businesses or who are working are thinking, I, I'm doing this because I want to do good in the world. Yeah. But, but in the church, oftentimes we're afraid to invite them to do the good for eternity that, that is the purpose for them of building their business or of working to begin with. So we, I think we just need to be brave sometimes in doing that. No, I, re- I remember as a relatively like new missionary, I remember the phrase, it's more blessed to give than receive. And I remember realizing I only believed that halfway. I believed it was true for me that I was more blessed when I gave rather than I received, but I didn't think it was true for other people. I was unwilling to give people the opportunity to give. And when I actually let that kind of like sink in and I started to say, okay, well, gosh, now my lens of like, who might I invite is like, well, who do I want to be blessed? Suddenly had a lot more people that I was, that I, that I was open to having a conversation in. Yeah. On that, we use donors, the word donors, right? That's the common American word for people who support something is donor. Right. And, And I don't love that word because the root of that is donation. You become a donor because you gave a donation. Hmm. I like the word benefactor much more because you become a benefactor because you're benevolent, Hmm. because you're doing good in the world, because you're participating in that good. So, and that's part of the why, why it's more blessed to give than to receive, because when you are benevolent, you are participating in a good. Yeah. You're actually pursuing a virtue. You're living a virtue. You're becoming more virtuous making yourself a better person and building up that treasure in heaven. Oh, Chris, I love it. Okay. So let's, let's dive in. I want to give it just, just for our listeners a chance, just to get a little bit of kind of the wisdom and and your experience here. Uh, Again, your work takes you lots of different places in the church. What advice do you have for church leaders who are just beginning the process of doing development work? Maybe they're like, ah, crap, all of those fears of rejection, (laughs) hypocrisy, like that's me. What would you say to somebody who's just getting started? Yeah. The the first thing, be new. This is a field where being new is really awesome, right? Yeah. When you walk into somebody and you say, hey, I'm brand new at this stuff. They'll give you so much grace and so much room. If you're a really experienced fundraiser, a donor will never tell you, you know, you should have asked for more, Chris. I could have given, I can give a lot more. (laughs) But when you say I'm new, they're absolutely willing to tell you that, you know, because they care. You know, they know how hard this is that you're 
that you're attempting this new effort and inviting someone into something? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love that. Like I'm actually flashing back, right? Our mutual friend, Father Robert Mattia, who has really embrace this in his, his role as a pastor, but, you know, blessed to know him when he was first starting out in development and he's like, oh my gosh, I think I'm going to be sick. And he had these wonderful <laughs> people who are like, okay, try again, father, ask, just ask for more this time. <laughs> and they were just like totally willing to meet him there. Mm-hmm. The, the second thing that I really love to see people who are new at this do is to ask people why they give. Mm. is to say, Hey, I'm new at this and I'm learning. Can I ask you why why do you give to the church? Or why did you agree to meet with me? Yeah. And and hearing people's why. First, you know, Simon Semenik wrote a great book, Start With Why. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is actually really important, not, not only from a learning perspective for yourself as a new fundraiser, but also for actually raising the funds that you're looking for, is to ask people why. Why do they care about that? Why do they give to the church? Why did they agree to meet with you? Because you're going to connect them to their own heart, yeah. which is one of the keys uh, in terms of fundraising is to get at the heart of things. Um, The second thing, and this is a hard question. So if anybody pushes back against this in their heart, know that I know that. One of the best questions you can ask people is, what's the biggest gift you've ever given and why did you give it? Wow. Number one is it's going to be powerful because it's going to share with you what really inspires them to give. Mm. Number two, for a fundraising standpoint, it's going to give you a clue as to what kind of a gift you might be thinking of from these people, not today, but someday in the future. One gentleman I met with, he, he worked in a warehouse. He, he ran the warehouse, but uh, you know, I thought, oh, wow, what a great guy. I'm so glad he's meeting. Maybe someday he can give us a $5,000 gift. And I asked him what the largest gift he had ever given to, given and why. He said, well, this may surprise you, but my wife and I gave a million dollars to an orphanage in India because the priest who founded it was a former pastor of ours. And we felt so convicted by all that he gave up to go and, and follow God's will that we felt that we should give something up and follow him on his mission. Wow. And not only did it blow me away and personally inspire me, but it also said, oh, wow, this person could become a much larger donor in the future. 5,000 wasn't maybe the right range. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But the other thing that I find that's, that's really amazing about this question, you know, I've often had people say the golden question in evangelization is to ask someone, is Jesus at the center of your life? And would you ever consider having him be at the center? Mm-hmm. That it's kind of that enlightening question because it connects so deeply to someone's heart. And I think of this as the golden question in fundraising. And it's a question that we think, just like that first question in evangelization, we think, oh my gosh, that's way too personal. I can't ask that. But if you've ever tried asking it, you'll be shocked at how desperate people are to answer your question. Mm. Because here you are asking about something for, especially for somebody who's been raised Catholic or Christian, that is right at the heart of what they think about in their inner thoughts all of the time. And no one has ever asked them. Yeah. And this is the same thing in, in, in modern Western culture. We don't, we don't go around talking about the big philanthropic gifts that we've made. Yeah. Number one is people don't, don't love talking about themselves as much as you think, oh, somebody has their name on this building. They're so conceited. 90% of the time, if somebody has their name on the building, it's because the college or the university or the whoever begged them to put it on to inspire other donors. And they said, please don't four times. And finally, they said, okay, if you really think it will help, 
it's okay. Yeah. It's not because people are trying to take credit for their gifts. And, and so most of the time when we've given a gift and think about this for yourself, whatever that gift was, you made it for a reason. Yeah. And it was important to you. And I can, I can almost bet that outside of your spouse, you've never told anybody that you made it. Yeah. Especially with what we talked about earlier, it's a beautiful experience. Right, Jesus says, "Where your treasure is, there, there will your heart be also." And there's this amazing moment on people's hearts that, because of social manners and the desire to avoid bragging, they can't ever share about. That's right. And you can release that if you're new. Hearing people's stories is is so powerful. And so I would I would encourage those three things. One is be new. Two is ask people why, and three is ask them what the biggest gift they've ever given is and why. And then you'll find that the rest of fundraising kind of just opens up easily. Oh my gosh, Chris, that's awesome. All right, let me ask this, see if I can you know, dig a little deeper here. Some of the mechanics, things like data analysis, grant writing, leadership development, strategy, I'm just imagining some people listening and those things seem overwhel- overwhelming. You know, development work has its own language. Uh, culture. It really is a a science in in many ways. Sometimes it can seem very foreign to the heart of leaders who just like, they just want to serve how God made them. Can you help connect the dots as to why development work is so important for the work of the church? I think first of all, sometimes people in development, maybe oftentimes people in development create this, all this jargon to make it seem like it's daunting so that somebody uh, respects their job more. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Gosh. Or, or feels like they need specialists. It's actually pretty simple. It's doing the right things the right way consistently. And those right things are not really that hard. They, they, but it, but doing them consistently, um, especially in the, in the church setting can be hard because they take time. And that's the commodity that is often the the least available. Yeah. But I think starting with what it is that you want to do, we often get a little caught up when it comes to fundraising. You know, the first thing you want to do, you want to have a vision for what you're trying to accomplish. Mm. And that vision should be the, why am I doing this? And what's the impact that I hope to have? Yeah. But, but we as people in a nonprofit or people who are in a mission, often get caught up in the how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Benefactors don't care how you're going to do it. They don't want to hear about all the details and when you're going to do the planning meeting. And then this is the next step. And this is the next step. We want to do a retreat because we want people to love Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we think that we can impact hundreds of lives if we're able to do this retreat. That's all you need. What the talks are going to be about, who's going to give them, where it's going to be. None of those are actually important in the asking for this gift. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes we could get caught up in all of that. Ultimately, it's about relationship, right? Building a personal relationship, sharing a vision with someone, and then saying, would you be a, would you come alongside and be a partner in this vision, in this mission? And I think if we just keep it boiled down to those things, none of these things are that complicated. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Chris, let's talk a little bit about those who are like, been there, done that. We we tried, I'm thinking a, a pastor, maybe an organizational leader, uh, maybe even a development professional, you know, who's been working at development and it just doesn't feel like it's working. It's not bearing fruit. What are, you know, without knowing the particulars of the situation, what are some of the pitfalls that often derail people when they do set out and try and do development work? I think that one of the biggest pitfalls is that we underestimate the power of meeting face-to-face with someone and inviting them personally. Uh, Like we talked about a little bit earlier in evangelization, 
is that evangelization from the pulpit, of course, the church has always done that in, in mass. That's a really great thing. But when I, I have yet to meet anyone who, when I say, when I ask them for their faith journey, says, well, I was in mass one day and I heard a homily and it changed my life. Yeah. Almost every story of conversion that I hear is I had a friend and that friend did something with me, invited me. Yes. One-on-one, -on -one, we were together and it changed my life. It's the same thing in fundraising. I think oftentimes when, when fundraising doesn't work, it's because we tried to do an event or we tried to send out a letter yeah. or we tried to give a talk at the front of the church or we tried to do a bake sale. And all of those things are good. I actually think there's a place for all of those things. But if, if you're talking about the success or failure of something, it's how many people did you sit down with face-to-face, one-on-one, and invite them in a meaningful way. Yeah. And that's the thing that takes the most time, but it's also things that the thing that's the most powerful. Yeah, I mean, what we were just talking about earlier, right? The database and the grant writing and this and all of that stuff is overwhelming. And for those people who have a heart for ministry, one-on-one -on -one is like totally their home game. So I mean, say that say that again, because I think like for, for those listening, you're saying the most important thing in fundraising actually is something that is a home game for most of our ministry leaders. Yeah. The, the, sometimes when we think about fundraising, we think about what big thing can we do? Can we put together this big event and, and have a whole bunch of people there? And that's going to, people are going to be inspired by other people giving. And that's not untrue. But when you see a successful event where they raise a bunch of money, mm -hmm. the reason that they raise a bunch of money is because someone has sat down one-on-one -on -one with all of the biggest donors before the event ever happened and asked them for their gift personally. Yes. And then said, hey, when we get to the event, would you raise your hand? Because we'll build enthusiasm and momentum. But they didn't raise the money at the event. They raised the money sitting down one-on-one -on -one with people and asking them for a gift. And, you know, we talked earlier about the, the middle class or um, the middle donor. Those people are often the most excited to be sat down with one-on-one -on -one because nobody ever does that. Yeah. Um, if you're talking about, you know, a very wealthy person, they, you know, uh, there, there's one very generous, amazing gentleman in New York who every time I visited him, I was in the waiting room with two other development people, you know, and one of us would go in and other, you know, and when I walked out, there were two new people because that was his whole day was meeting with fundraisers. But I can tell you as a, as kind of a middle-class person myself, I very rarely get phone calls asking me to meet and hear about somebody's vision and inviting me to give a gift, yeah. even though I could give a medium you know, four figure gift kind of thing Yeah, that, that often would, you know, at least in, in the mission world in the church would fund something significant Yeah, if you sat down with a handful of people. Yeah. It, it's more time effective than, you know, going to town on a huge event and it's more rewarding. Mm -hmm. I mean, just sit down and you connect with people. Oh, and I think that connecting with people is important when, when we think about, you know, we kind of talked about what would you do if you were starting out or if you're not being successful, mm -hmm. I think that the, one of the main things that we need to cultivate to make all that come together is gratitude. Yeah. That we need to be really grateful for the people who give their support. And oftentimes because of the fears and concerns we talked about earlier, we tend as ministries to not meet with our donors and not want to talk about their giving. Yeah. I've never had a pastor who I think has any idea how much I give. And, and I think that they would say, well, I just don't want to treat anybody different because of how much they give. And I understand that. But because of that, 
what ends up happening is you tell people you're just an ATM wow. um, because all the, I, I do things and then money comes from you into my bank account or into my hand. Donors want to be known, loved, and cared for. They want to be thanked for their gift. They want to be told what happened because of their gift. They want to feel like they're a partner in the ministry. Yeah. And then they want to be invited to do more. We like those kind of things. When angel investors give, or when we invest in the stock market, we want to put money into something that won't do anything unethical or immoral. And then what we hope is at the end, more money comes back to us, right? Giving money away isn't that kind of a thing. We give money away because we want to be in partnership with the organizations that we give. And oftentimes in ministry, we don't allow people to be a partner through their giving. We, we think that by talking about their gift, they'll think that we're treating them differently. But the thing that the, the way we should treat them differently is with gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and thankfulness. Yeah. I love that. Again, it doesn't, sadly, it doesn't happen very often, but when someone notices that I gave a gift, they know when, and they tell me the effect it had on them and the effect it had on, on their ministry. I love that. I, I feel like it was worth it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's like, Okay, good. That's exactly what I was hoping. I was hoping to be a blessing. Thanks for confirming it worked. Yeah. And I can tell you, your alma mater and the homeless shelter and the animal shelter, they're doing that. And because of that, yeah. people are increasing their giving significantly because they're like, wow, it seems like my gift really made a difference and they really appreciated it. So when I get a raise, I'm going to increase my gift there. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing we talked about earlier. When the church, when it thinks of fundraising, it thinks of stewardship first. And I think that's beautiful because the church uses money so wisely most of the time and frugally. And in stewardship is a disciple's response. But stewardship is an obligation and gift giving is not an obligation. And I think too often mm. we think of stewardship, a disciple's response as they should support the church because they're disciples which is true. Right. But if you're talking about how do you increase the giving, you it is also on us to be grateful and to be thankful for that response even if that response is what Jesus expected of people. Gosh, that's good. That is good stuff. And, and you know what's crazy is I think again about the hearts of leaders who are listening. They're naturally grateful people, which I think we're, yeah, we're doing here in this conversation. Praise God. You're I think you're helping to kind of remove these mental blocks and obstacles and say, yeah, it's okay to be grateful. The, the deep encouragement that you experience as a pastor when this unexpected gift came, it's okay to say thank you in a deeply personal way. And what is naturally welling up inside of you, don't let it get stolen away by the busyness of your time. And don't let some awkward social construct that makes you think that you shouldn't say thank you, keep you from expressing that gratitude. Mm -hmm. Chris, this has been fantastic. Give us like some closing advice here, you know, for those who are like, okay, I'm in, I want to do this. Like you've been reading my journal, just stop it. Like <laughs> I, I know I'm supposed to like take some first steps into, into the development world, but where should they begin? One thing that I would love to see Catholics in ministry do more of is to think about starting a, a mission campaign. Mm. In the Catholic Church, we think of a campaign as being something you do when you're in, improving the church or building a new parish hall, right? They're almost all campaigns in the Catholic Church are, are building campaigns. Yeah. And I would love, it is my dream to see more ministries and churches say, we're going to do a mission campaign because we want more mission going on in our church. 
So we're going to do oh a $250,000 mission campaign so that we can start it. We can start the best retreat program in the nation. We can, you know, start the best catechi- adult catechesis. Or when we kick off, you know, we're going to, I was just in a, a evangelical church last night. They were advertising a men's event that it was like barbecue and drones <laughs> that the church buys. They we're going to buy 10 drones so that we can do a cool thing with our youth and a cool thing to invite men from the community to come out who aren't necessarily practicing, but the church would never do that because the church just can't buy 10 drones. Yeah. And so I would love to see a mission campaign where, where we go out to our parishioners and say, we're trying to raise an extra $500,000 to transform the mission that our parish is doing. And it talks about the why and the impact, uh, even if you don't have all the how worked out and invite somebody to give a $50,000 gift to that or a $25,000 gift or invite, you know, 10 people like me to give a $5,000 gift. Yeah. That I I'm not going to put that in the collection basket, but for something like that, that would be exciting. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Right. And when we're fundraising for mission for changing souls, like that lasts forever. I mean, buildings eventually come down, but evangelizing someone, changing their their heart and their mind and their eternal destiny, that lasts forever. And that's a pretty good use of resources. <laughs> it is. Wow. Chris, this has been fantastic. I want to give you a chance, just like a shout out here for resources that have inspired you that you think might be helpful to folks listening. And then tell us how people can get a hold of you. As far as a, a book or two, I love, um, if, you're, if you're really interested in fundraising, any book by Jerry Panis you can read in two hours and is extremely insightful. Yeah. How do you spell that last name? Jerry? Panis. P-A-N-A-S. We'll put that in the show notes too. Uh, I would also check out Philanthropy Daily. It's a blog um, that, that our company runs that just has a lot of fun articles on fundraising. And then if you're interested in learning more about development or you know, you're thinking about doing a mission campaign or any other kind of campaign, I or one of my colleagues would love to just chat with you about it. You know, if you just want a 30 to 45 minute free, like little consulting thing, that would be, that'd be awesome. So feel free to reach out to me. That's fantastic. And uh, would love to, would love to do that. Chris at AmericanPhilanthropic.com, which is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to spell that, but we'll, that's right. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. Great. Chris at AmericanPhilanthropic.com. Yes. That's awesome. Chris, thank you. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate it. I was like, time just like totally flew here. So this is great. Well, thank you for having me, Jim. This is a, a great blessing and, and thanks for all you did in my life. So I'm really grateful for you. Yeah, really fun to connect. All right, everybody. If this has been a blessing for you, if you know a parish that you'd like to see do a mission campaign, if you know a pastor or an organizational leader who isn't a fundraiser, but probably needs to be at least a little bit like send this to them. Let it be a blessing or encouragement. And uh, thanks. Thanks for being with us. God bless everybody.